For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Let's go back over to the UK because there's some stuff going on over there you may have heard of. Uh, new face to the program. Always enjoy our UK contributors. Uh, Kalen Payton is joining us from over there. Uh, he's a trainee lawyer. I don't like that term very much, but he's also studied history. He's written a book. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, he's um, director of The Speaker, a political outlet over there. Kalen, great to see you, buddy. Appreciate your time today, my friend. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for having me on. So nothing major going on over there. I guess we can just talk about <laughs> football and the uh, Premier League table, right? Exactly, exactly. Not much going on here at all. <laughs> As uh, we're recording this PMQ's Prime Minister questions just ended here about eh, about 45 minutes ago, yeah. uh, U.S. time. Uh, let's just start right there. Richie Sunak, um, of course, he does all the ceremonial stuff with the king, and he had his first side of 10 Downing Street and all that. PMQ's is really your job as far as the public-facing job. How do you do first time out? Yeah, so it was, um, I think his his own party, the Conservative Party, will be pretty pleased with how he performed, actually, because um, today was really his first full day in the job. He took office yesterday, formed his cabinet last night, and then today was that first sort of parliamentary bit of process that we have over here. And um, yeah, Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition, the Labour Party leader, was uh, throwing some, some pretty tough questions at him, but he... Um, he seemed to bat them off quite well. He certainly performed a lot better than his um, predecessor, Liz Truss. Now, to be fair to Liz Truss, now we all know what happened there, 45 days mm. in office. For those that are not familiar with PMQs and have never watched them, the British Parliament, they sit in benches opposite facing. So the two sides are facing each other with the speaker in the middle. The dispatch box is in the middle when you stand to speak. I encourage folks to watch this. It's a great piece mm. of political theater that I wish we did because most of our people wouldn't be able to handle it, frankly. What's really interesting here with the Liz Trust situation is actually what I was watching today was what's going on behind him. Let's call this what it is. During the leadership race, we covered it. We had people on the show about it. The whole thing of the leadership race was the MPs all wanted Sunak when it went to the larger party. That's where Liz Trust had her backing and she won. But it was very obvious now. I mean, let's just we got to deal with the facts as they are on the ground. It's very apparent she never really had the backing of the MPs. That's what I was watching today. Does they have yeah. now? It's, of course, it's performative, but they did seem to want to show a solid wall of Tory today. It mm. does look like he's at least going to have that piece that Liz Truss, frankly, never had. Yeah, 100%. Because um, when she won that leadership race, um, literally just over a month ago now, um, she only just squeaked through to the final two with her own MPs. So the final two, uh, they do a lot of voting within the party first. The final two then go to the membership of the Conservative Party. Now, she only got through on the final round of voting. 
and was a long, long way behind him um, to get there. So when the members then selected her, she had a lot of her parliamentary colleagues really not supporting her at all. And so that means that when the going got tough and it got tough very, very quickly, they were not there to support her and it became really untenable really, really quickly for her, which is why you saw that after just 45 days, she had to resign. Whereas Boris Johnson, who had about six months of really turbulent politics, was able to survive a lot longer because he had the backing of his party. And then you saw today with um, with Sunak, the MPs behind him, he ended up getting the support of around 200 of them in the uh, in the election last week out of about 360 MPs, which means that he has got a really solid base of support now in the party and he's going to be a lot more uh, it'll be a lot harder to topple him. And so when the going gets tough, it's going to be much harder for the opposition to to really dig in on him because he's going to have that that support behind him and he's going to be in a much more solid position. And I think that was probably reflected in, in the way that he approached PMQs today. Um, he threw a lot of sort of red meat to his back benches, went in and threw a lot of the... Um, the phrases that they really enjoy, a lot of the jabs at the former Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, that they love that kind of stuff. Talking about um, Brexit and the vaccine response and how he, as Chancellor, responded to COVID. That was something that played really well with his backbenchers. And I think because of the support that he has in his party, is able to do that a lot more effectively than Trust ever could. Yeah, Caelan Payton joined us from over in the UK. Uh, let, let's be adults here. Politics has a lot of momentum and gravity to it. Mm. Part of the problem, it, Liz Truss got caught up in it. Richie Sunak's going to have to figure out a way to overcome it. There's a gravity problem with the conservative party. They've been in power for 12 years, no matter what their record is aside from that. That's just a really, really long time, especially in UK yeah. politics. This is getting close to a record in the modern era. They've just been in power for a long time. Uh, the last election was, of course, the Boris Johnson, which he you know, endlessly told us about his mandate. He's gone. So that's gone. There's going to be continuous cries for a general election. There's some gravity stuff besides the politics, besides the economic crisis, besides the political chaos of the last 60 days. This is just going to be a steep hill to climb before you put anything else on it, just because of the gravity of the current chronology of what's going on with mm. the conservative party right now. Right. Yeah, 100%, because um, unlike in, in the States where your elections are fixed um, every four years, we have sort of a window where election has to be held. It has to be within five years, but the uh, government basically gets to decide when that election is. So we've got a bit of a weird situation at the moment where our government's in quite a weak position because of the turmoil of the last month and a half, but really it's been going on a lot longer than that. So there's a lot of cries in the country for an election. There's a lot of cries um, from the Labour Party across the other side of Parliament uh, for an election, but they don't have control over that. It is the government who can control it. Now, we saw um, with Liz Trust, there were really increasing calls for an election because of how weak her position was as prime minister. So it really depends how these first few weeks and months go for Sunak as to whether we're going to end up in a situation where an election is likely. Because um, if he's able to cement his position, if he's got his parliamentary party behind him and can perform well, there is nothing the opposition can do. No matter how turbulent our politics gets, there won't be an election until he calls one. And that could run all the way up until January 2025. So um, it's difficult. And that really does put the pressure on him because it is about how well he performs as to whether his party will end up having to face an election or not. 
and whether he will sort of have his government swept out of power or whether he can maintain this sort of semblance of credibility and stability which will allow him to keep going. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, Kalen Pe- Payton. See, I told you I'd mess it up. Kalen <laughs> Payton, uh, joining us from the UK. You were writing in 1828 about mm. this. You broke it into two parts, like I did, and everybody, pretty much everybody. Look, there's the economic yeah. crisis and the political crisis. We're talking the political crisis, so let's just stay on that for yeah. just a moment. You talk about Richie Sunak mentioned it this morning. The manifesto. Mm-hmm. Are they going to have to shift gears policy wise? Because I know the Liz Trust stuff. Look. Politics and policy and optics all go together. The optics were so bad with Liz Trust when they did. Yeah. We call it a flip-flop. Y'all call it a U-turn. You had a great line in this piece where you said the handbrake turn. That's a drifting reference mm-hmm. for those of you from Logan that don't know what that is. Um, that really hard just when you just completely reverse yourself. Even if you're completely right on the merits, that's just it always looks bad. There's no real recovery from that. What's Sunak's first like? He needs some layups here, just political yeah. strategy wise. He needs like a couple of easy wins, something to kind of get some momentum going. Are there any on the board right now? A couple of easy things he can maybe try to get done. Yeah. So this is ultimately, I think, where Liz Truss failed is that she started to pursue this economic agenda, which she didn't have any kind of mandate for. She veered so far from that 2019 manifesto that you mentioned that even her own party were like, what is going on here? This isn't what we're elected on. This isn't what we want as a party. Now, Sunak yesterday in his first speech as prime minister immediately came out and said that his mandate is rooted in that manifesto so that he's going to stick by it and he's going to really implement the politics and the policy that was contained in that manifesto. So um, I think in terms of the low-hanging fruit, the first thing is to reverse most of what Liz Truss did. Now, her, uh, his chancellor did that um, last week. He's already reversed all of the tax cuts um, that Liz Truss had tried to implement. But also he's now signaled that he's going to go further and, and reverse a lot of the sort of environmental policy that she was trying to implement. So, for example, uh, she tried to reverse the ban on fracking. Now, I know fracking is very popular in the States, but we've got obviously a very different geography to you. Uh, we don't have sort of that vast space where you can frack safely. Most of our fracking sites are within, I believe, 10 to 20 miles of a residential area, which obviously causes problems for um, sort of ground shimmers and um, subsidence and things like that, which can obviously damage people's homes. Um, so that was obviously incredibly controversial because a lot of the areas where fracking tends to take place in the UK were constituencies with Conservative MPs. And so immediately Sunak has, re- um, has reversed that policy of Liz Truss and um, re-implemented that ban on fracking, which certainly for 
a lot of Conservative voters and for a lot of his own MPs is an incredibly popular decision that he's taken. And I think those kind of decisions are what we're going to see from him, particularly early on, is just reverting course back towards that 2019 manifesto, trying to um, do those policies that are traditionally popular with Conservative voters and with the Conservative members of Parliament that support him. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the economic crisis for just a second. Yeah. Uh, look, a lot of this is outside everybody's control. We, we just did the chart uh, two days ago on our show. Mm. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now. Of course, uh, the war in Ukraine is driving part of that. Part of that is just yeah. trends and cycles. You know, economics has a, you know, a circadian rhythm to it of up and down. And this is just mm -hmm. down. It's worldwide right now. The problem with something like inflation and an economic crisis like the war in Ukraine, which caused an energy crisis, is it exposes what was already there. Yeah. Rishi Sunak, when he was chancellor to Exeter, or however you say that crazy word you all got over there. <laughs> exactly, when he, yeah. Yeah, when he was chancellor, he talked about this openly. I don't think he'll talk yeah. about it quite as openly as prime minister because, frankly, he can't politically. He talked about it. He's like, look, we've got, some, we've got economic mess that we haven't dealt with in many, many years. And then when you have a crisis, all of a sudden those fault lines become really big canyons. Now, yeah. he's not going to talk that bluntly now that he's prime minister, but that was his role for a long time. He's a very smart individual. He's done very well for himself in business privately. How's he address this in a way of going like, look, there's some just math here that's bad. And this is going to be bad. The UK recession that's coming, they're talking about this thing maybe being 18 months to three years. This is not mm -hmm. going to be a quick fix no matter what. How does he communicate that bluntly while still giving people hope and still not uh, politically giving people like, hey, we're going to work on this, but it's going to take time. That's a heavy lift yeah. for anybody, a brand new PM. That's a really steep hill to climb. But that's what he's got to do, isn't it? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that so in the summer when Boris Johnson first resigned, we had a much longer leadership contest, which was about six or seven weeks long. And he spent the entirety of that leadership contest warning what is happening in the UK economy and also what would happen if Liz Truss implemented the economic policy that she was pursuing. And you saw him say that in his first speech once he accepted the leadership and uh, again today in PMQs that um, we are in a very, very difficult economic situation, but he's gained credibility for spending that first leadership campaign, which he ultimately lost talking about those issues and explaining exactly what's going to happen um, if we pursue a Liz Truss-style economic policy. So he can now take office in a much stronger position and say, well, I, I thought this was going to happen. I told you this was going to happen. And I told you the type of policy we need to get out of it. And so he's now standing quite legitimately on a platform where he can say, we do need to increase taxes. I know it's going to be painful, but that's what we need to do to sort of settle the UK economy. And so as much as it's going to be very difficult, and I think it will be politically painful for him, the Liz Truss era was so bad. And he was the one that was more than anyone else warning about what might happen ahead of time. He's now in a position where he can implement what would generally be incredibly unpopular tax rises or spending cuts but have a greater legitimacy to do it and um, probably have greater support in doing it because of how bad that Liz Truss era went.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Yeah, Callum Patton joining us. Let, let's talk about Liz Trust for just a second. Mm. Um, I don't I don't want to do the legacy thing because it's not fair because she was kind of set up to fail and then she perpetuated that with some really bad decision making, not mm. having not understanding the room that she didn't have the support to go big and then going big. So it's, you know, not not all on her, but she didn't help it any. Yeah, I know you mentioned Neville Chamberlain writing about it, and but you know these things are complicated when you go back in history because yeah, Neville Chamberlain gets all the mess for the for the appeasement stuff, but he also built up the RAF, which ended up saving Britain. So you know these things have layers to it. Mm. When we get a year or two away from the Liz Trust <clears throat> thing, what's the lesson going to be? Is it a political lesson? Is it a backroom politic lesson? What do you think is going to be when they teach this in political theory in a year or two from now in university? Yeah. What do you think they're going to be saying about that era? Not so much her personally, but like, hey, this this is an anomaly in British history. How do we keep this mm. from ever happening again? Yeah, I think probably two main lessons will be taken from it. One is an economic one. It's that you may believe in an ideology very strongly. You may quite rightly think that we should be cutting taxes, which is obviously not an unpopular opinion however you have to be wary of the economic climate that you're in and understand that just because you believe something and you think it's the right idea doesn't mean that it's the right time for that kind of policy and that kind of um um yeah economic policy the other one and i think it's probably going to end up being the much bigger lesson is a political one it's that she was elected by around 60, 65% of the Conservative Party members, not a particularly small mandate from her party. She then had the death of the Queen, which left her with a lot, quite a lot of goodwill. Then she implemented the mini budget, which in the first day or so was incredibly popular with a lot of Tory members because it was this great tax cutting bill that reminded people of Margaret Thatcher, who is still to this day seen by the Conservative Party as sort of a standard bearer in a way that Ronald Reagan is similarly seen in the States. And that was really popular. But then the markets reacted. They absolutely hated it. The value of the pound against the dollar fell. Guilt yields rose, which made the cost of borrowing much more expensive for the government. Then you had a lot of turbulence in sort of um, in uh, insurance markets and pension funds where a lot of... Um, investments are tied up and you had to have interventions by the Bank of England. Suddenly you saw all of this fall away. And within three weeks of that mini budget, she was gone. And I think the main lesson that will be taken is the fact that she did this incredibly quickly. She had no need to announce such bold policy immediately. She could have taken a much more measured and slow approach because there was no immediate election coming along. She could have spaced out this policy over a few years tried to implement it slowly. In much the way that Thatcher did, it took her about five or six years before she went really, really bold. 
she waited for the economic conditions to be right. Um, trust went really quickly, really, really heavy on sort of the ideology of tax cutting without any kind of thought for whether that was appropriate for the moment. But I think even more significant is that she refused to take any kind of advice that suggested that might not be appropriate. She sacked the top civil servant in the Treasury just before the budget. She didn't um, speak to the Office of Budget Responsibility, which basically oversees a lot of these budgets and makes sure that they are sort of fiscally prudent and the right thing for the economy at that time. And so the fact that she ignored a lot of these things, pushed ahead really quickly without any kind of um, thought or ongoing plan is the ultimate failure of her um, premiership. And I think that's probably the major lesson that people end up taking from it. Just real quick, though, before we move off, let's trust. At the time, we all felt like the pause was probably beneficial, the national mourning period for the queen. Mm. In retrospect, was it really a bad thing for her? Because it seemed like it avalanched the whole thing. Maybe that stopgag, instead of being a respite, it just damned everything up, and then it just avalanched after it. In retrospect, is that an accurate assessment, you think? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I think in many ways, it was a bit of an opportunity for her because... She, up until quite recently, was not a particularly frontline figure in in UK politics. She became the foreign secretary, I believe, um, earlier this year. And so that was her first real big exposure to the public. But still, she wasn't particularly well known. So when she took office, that was her opportunity to define herself to the public. So in a way, that pause gave her the opportunity to be seen a lot in a much more... um, friendly way in a way that you're not going to have that immediate pressure thrown on you you're going to be seen as a leader in an important time but you're not going to have a lot of pressure on you there was a lot of willingness and goodwill there but then within a week of that whole morning period being over is when the mini budget happened and that's really what led to her downfall and whether whether the morning period made them go into that a bit more blindly or whether it actually you know, saved her another two weeks if they'd done that budget sooner and she might have ended up losing her um, her job sooner. So it's difficult to say, but I would probably say it was an opportunity for her rather than that being the reason that she fell. Um, it's just an opportunity, the opportunity that she didn't really take. Yeah, I think missed opportunity might be the subheading on this whole ordeal of the last uh, 60 yeah. days or so. Real quick, mm-hmm. before we let you go, uh, for the outside observers like us uh, overseas in America, the worldwide audience that we have, give us a couple mile posts to be watching for with Rishi Sunak. Obviously, he's he's going to go a little bit slower than Liz trusted because, you know, he he's a yeah. smart guy. He saw what just happened. Give us one or two things to watch for as the news starts trickling out over the next couple of weeks. What should we watch for? What's kind of the first milestone besides, you know, making it 45 days without getting sacked? Mm, yeah. What's a couple of things we should be watching for to measure how Rishi Sunak is doing as a prime minister? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that at the moment, the Conservatives are so far behind the polls. It's something like 30 points that you'd imagine 
he is going to start closing that gap to a more um, typical level, maybe 10, 15, 20 points. It'll be interesting to watch those polls in the coming weeks to see whether he does actually close that gap or not. So I think that'll be quite an important thing to watch for because it will really define, I think, particularly how our politics goes next year in 2023, whether the Conservatives still are extremely far behind the polls or whether they start to close that gap. The other one is the fiscal statement that's coming uh, in in mid-November, I think the 17th of November, which is essentially going to outline his economic policy moving forward. Obviously, it was the economic policy of Liz Trust that led to her downfall. So this is going to be something to watch for to see how he does it. You'd imagine it's going to be a lot more prudent that it might see some moderate tax increases and things like that. But obviously, that could have its own political ramifications if he does start to increase tax. So I think really the main thing to look out for is that statement and see what approach he takes, but also to see whether he's able to start closing that gap in the coming weeks. Yeah. Callum Payton, uh, great stuff, my friend. You wrote a book called 2020 As It Happened. You could definitely do mm. a, a sequel on 2022 between the <laughs> Queen and three prime ministers. We're not even done with it yet. Uh, yeah. so you might want to look into that. Might want to go ahead and get that you know, locked down as <laughs> copyright. My yeah. friend. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. Until we get you back on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on with your writings and other things, my friend. Yeah, yeah. so my Twitter is um, at Peyton underscore Callum. Um, so do have a look over there. And if you want to check out um, The Speaker, which is um, a media organization that I run, then that's at Speaker Politics. And you can see some of the writing that I do over there. Yep. We'll link to all of that, including a couple of his pieces. Uh, he wrote about the trust has left the mail and possibly difficult for her successor. That's the one we were quoting from here. He's written some other stuff. We'll link to all of it. Make sure you follow him and keep up with him. We'll have you back on, man, because it ain't going to get any less interesting over in the UK. <laughs> exactly. Besides, that means we don't have to talk about our own problems. So we can focus on y'all. Uh, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you very much. Yes, sir.